Welcome to The Gabby Ree Show, where we break down the complex worlds of health, fitness, family, business, and relationships with the world's leading experts. I'm your host, Gabby Reese, and I'm here to simplify these topics and give you practical takeaways that you can start using today. We all know that living a healthy, balanced life isn't always easy. Let's try working on managing life a little better and have some fun along the way. Because after all, life is just one big experiment and we're all doing our best. Inflammation is the commonality between just about all health problems, but the question is what's causing the inflammation? And that's really, I really get into with in gut feelings because it's both physiological and psychological for many people because underlying gut problems will spike inflammation. That's where 75% of the immune system is. Inflammation is a product of the immune system. But on the feeling side, chronic stress, unresolved trauma will impact inflammation levels just as much as a food that doesn't love you back, just as much as the wine. Uh, it's it's going to impact it. So it's not just about what we're feeding our body. It's what are we serving our head and our heart on a daily basis? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is functional medicine expert, Dr. Will Cole. And we get into all about his new book called Gut Feeling. And I really appreciate Dr. Cole's work because he understands all the complicated things around chronic inflammation and mitochondrial function, your microbiome, and on and on. But he has the great ability to make it really simple. And in his latest book that's out called Gut Feeling, we talk about the microbiome. And I know that we hear this all the time. Oh, the importance of the health of your microbiome. And, you know, there's trillions and trillions of these bacterial cells. And we know really what about maybe 500 of them do. So how do we positively feed our guts, support our gut health, get into discovering if our gut's not working correctly, how can we fix it and heal it? And he does a really great job of explaining not only step-by-step, step, but maybe some of the things to approach. So if we're not feeling our best, maybe we have chronic inflammation from either lifestyle choices or stress. Don't kid yourself. This is something I look at all the time. I do a very, a pretty solid job in my lifestyle choices, but I internalize a lot of my stress. You know, he even un unpacks this idea of, listen, there's things in our life that maybe we haven't dealt with. And no matter how great we eat and exercise and get to bed early, if we don't deal with these things, how it can really impact our health, our overall health and our guts. So we talk about tests you can take for real on how to analyze what's going on, foods you can eat to soothe your gut. Dr. Cole is so great at getting at the heart of things, but also saying, listen, there's no way to separate our physiology and our psychology and how when we are seeking wholeness, wellness, that we can't ignore also some of the things that are more invisible. So it's not just about food and exercise, but it's about all of us and that we don't land there. This is a constant thing. This is a practice. This is being a human being. So he is an author. He's a functional medicine expert. He has a podcast, The Art of Being Well, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. Will Cole, I thank you for coming on my podcast again. And we were just saying that you've been busy at your clinic. And wait, how many children do you have? Two, <laughs> 16 and 14 year old. And yeah, doing all the things, running the telehealth <laughs> clinic, have two golden doodles. <laughs> 
How did you guys survive COVID with uh, teenagers? How did that go for them? You know, it was, looking back, I mean, look, it was a horrible time uh, for a lot of people. Um, So I don't want to gloss over that. But for us, it was actually a lot of silver linings for us. Um, We got to spend more time together. I mean, my job didn't change because I've been in telehealth we started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers 13 years ago. So my job changed 0%, 0% other than not traveling. So what really was so nice is my kids were home more uh, and I got to spend time with them. I loved it. I still came to the telehealth center, but I'd go back. I just loved it. I just, we played more board games. We spent more time together. We watched more shows, uh, hung out. So how about you guys? What was it like for you? No, we were the same thing. And I think it would be hardest if you had little kids. Our kids were a little bit bigger. Yeah. So there's that level of independence. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. I too, because you kind of, I think as they get older, realize how precious the time is, even though you're like, get out of my house, but wait, don't go. Mm-hmm. I think there was a, a, a bit of that for us where it was, they got this independence. They could go outside and do their thing, but then we have more quality time. Yeah. And how old are your kids? My youngest is 15 and then 19, and then okay. we have a grown okay. uh, daughter. Who yeah, was, I think was we grown. have it easier f- in yeah. that way. I, I hear the horror stories from people on my team that are like the, the toddler is working from home. Like, that, that seems yeah. horrible, that, I mean, tough, right? Yeah, like working from home with little kids. Yeah. Yeah. So, Will, you, write, you wrote this new book, Gut Feelings, and you, know, you talk to a lot of patients. And I'm wondering, is, is it because this is showing up over and over that gut health and your microbiome is just so important. What, what is it that you Mm -hmm. thought, okay, I'm going to dedicate time to this. You know, what showed up for you? Yeah. For me, the book is born, it is born out of my clinical work with patients here. I wanted a deep dive discussion on what I see clinically and what is in the research between gut and feelings, you know, our, our physio- physiological health and the mental, emotional, spiritual health. So it's a really, um, I'm having a discussion in the book of how mental health is not separate from physical health, really. Mental health is physical health and how underlying gut problems, just like other physiological things, right? The other sources of inflammation, we deal a lot with mold toxicity, chronic Lyme disease, what, what, whatever you're dealing with physiologically, how that can impact your mood, impact things like anxiety and depression and brain fog and fatigue. But then conversely, a large part of the book is the feeling side of gut feelings, where I'm talking about things like chronic stress, unresolved trauma, and how these mental, emotional, spiritual facets will impact our physical health, will be literally stored in our body and our cells, impacting something called methylation, which impacts inflammation levels and our hormone health and our neurotransmitter health. So um, it is really born out of when you talk to people with autoimmune issues and hormonal problems and fatigue issues and things like anxiety, these are the facets that are at play. It's the both and, not either or, the gut and the feelings that need to be talked about. So yeah, it is a important conversation when you look at the statistics, the amount of people that are dealing with those health mm-hmm. issues. It was interesting because you talk about in the book about autoimmune sometimes is like a, is a almost like, I don't want to say a disconnection with self, but maybe not connecting fully with self. And I'm, I wonder when I, when people hear that, um, 
Because I feel like they, they do want to keep it separate. It's like, no, this is my emotional health. This is my physical health. If when you tell people, hey, you're gonna, you might have to tackle some internal things going on with you that will then favorably impact your physical health. How do a lot of people respond? <laughs> how do they respond to that? Yeah, I mean, it, and when I that that section in one of those chapters in the book, when I talk about how the researchers refer to autoimmunity, even if you just think about it on a purely physiological level, when the immune system has something called molecular mimicry, it's when the immune system has basically a, a, a case of a mistaken identity, when it starts tagging, there's over a hundred different autoimmune conditions, but it could be Hashimoto's disease against the thyroid, or it could be the myelin sheath for MS, or the gut for ulcerative colitis or Crohn's and rheumatoid arthritis with the joints, so so on and so forth. So the immune, the researchers actually have this terminology that they talk about as the immune system losing recognition of self, that molecular mimicry. And then I thought, okay, how deep is that? Poignant is even that concept when you think of someone losing recognition of self. Yes, that's happening on a cellular mechanistic standpoint, but we also know from the research of shame and unresolved trauma and how there's so much of loss of recognition of self on that side of things and how these mental emotional things, facets for many people can trigger, can be the precipice, can be at least a component to why people have these flare-ups in the first place. So we have to look at the feeling side of that gut feelings duality to understand things like autoimmunity, and not just with autoimmunity, but really inflammatory problems as a whole. We, we should not relegate mental health and emotions and experiences and trauma and impact on our physical health, because it's really linked to just about every chronic health problem we're faced uh, with as a society. When you see patients you know, it can be, I feel like people feel really overwhelmed and, and more than ever. And we all talk about it all the time. There's a million podcasts, there's, you know, articles out there over and over about, you know, with our technology and with the pace of our lives and always being connected. But yet it, it feels like we still aren't really figuring out how to deal with it. Ultimately, it's like, we've never had more information and, and, you know, kind of the tools to figure this out. What is it from your side? Because you talk to people all the time. What are the things that really actually get in the way of people making changes? Look, I think we're at a, a massive, in many ways, on many levels, we're at a massive precipice of the way that people digest and utilize information in our world. And a lot of old systems are being threatened from because of it. There's a, there used to be a lot of gatekeepers when it came to health information, right? And it was uh, the, the man in the coat that you saw once a year, twice a year, and everything they said was gospel. And you didn't have access to the internet where you could go on PubMed and read the research for yourself. We have more than ever before an educated, informed populace that we have to do better for. I mean, we're, all, we're a part of that. We're, we want to ask questions and not be medically gaslit when we ask questions about our health and wanting to have informed consent. And to have informed consent, you actually have to know the ins and outs and what's at play here. What does the research say? And what does the research not say as far as um, how does health, what can we have? Like, how can we have agency over our health? So I think that's a large 
part of it when it comes to understanding what's at play for our health. But do you think that the shift is, because sometimes it feels like paralysis by overanalysis. Like I feel like there is so Mm -hmm. much information that we've almost, and we've gotten so far from our nature that there feels like, because we are in this shift and we haven't really learned how to drive the car yet, so to speak, that I I also almost feel like we're in a, we're in this weird quagmire too. You're absolutely right. Sorry, I didn't finish my thought on that. You're there absolutely is a paralysis of analysis because there is so much I'm a fan of democratization of information. I'm a fan of decentralization of information so people can have have information, take what they want from it. They don't not everything's applicable to everybody and that's okay. And we have to have discernment on what is relevant for us. And be savvy consumers of information and, and he, what we read and what we hear uh, and what we see. But you're right. There's a lot of knowing. There's a lot of information out there. Mm-hmm. But there's the the unsexy part of it is the doing and the consistency, which is the human problem, right? Especially in modernity, we are so programmed. I mean, the, the the benefits of technology is we get great information, but also the benef- the drawbacks of technology is it distracts and num- numbs us from actually doing things that matter, which is typically offline. Like what are we doing in our day-to-day basis, which isn't so sexy and there's not so much dopamine hits when it comes to actually the day-to-day grind of showing up for yourself. So let let's start there. Let's let's say you're you know you're the king of the castle and you get to you know move all the pieces around for us and you say okay for a starting point. And let's let's stay f- for this sake of this conversation. Let's use the gut because everyone talks about the gut health microbiome it being connected like you said to your sense of well-being, even your brain function, your personality, all these things. Um but then simultaneously it's there are trillions of microbes and we only know like 500 of them and what they really do. And so I think people have heard this a lot, but they don't really know, okay, X is the starting spot. So if someone comes to you, mm-hmm. maybe they're not, their health is, is not off the rails yet, but they go, you know, I, I really would like to put more energy into this. You know, where would you, where would you start? And you get to say it however you want. But my hope is in this conversation, these are people with real lives. These are not people who live mm-hmm. on a mountain in a tent alone and can dedicate their entire life to this. They've got kids, they have jobs, they're trying to fit it all in. Where do we start on this? Mm-hmm. And that's the majority of people that I talk to, right? I mean, the vast majority of patients I have are nine to five pe- people, people who work regular jobs. Uh, statistically, I see a lot of nurses, school teachers entrepreneurs, engineers, I found that those people have a common love of spreadsheets and getting to the root cause. And we love spreadsheets and functional medicine too. We want answers. Like how, what's the data say? How can we really get to the root cause of why we're dealing with our health issues? So I have to be pragmatic when it comes to how do we optimize our health, no matter where, where we're at on that inflammation spectrum, whether it's like mild fatigue weight loss resistance, maybe some anxiety, depression, some maybe digestive problems, all the way to extreme chronic fatigue syndrome, panic disorder, autoimmune issue, type 2 diabetes, and everything in between. We have to be pragmatic. So if you're looking for the most 
needle-moving things. You know, I, you have to start with food. I mean, you have to you have to start with food. And if you haven't done that, most of our patients, by the time they met us, they already have done that. And we're there to refine that, optimize it, and get more granular as far as what's relevant for them. Because even healthy foods, what works for one person may not be right for the next person. But if somebody's like, okay, they know this theoretically, but haven't taken action. And by this, I say consist. I would say consistent action. It's not going to be 30 days of something. If you're dealing with a chronic health problem, even if it's mild, the gut can take six to 24 months, depending on how severe the issue is with a lot of different variables to consider. It can take months, not weeks, to really get to the place of resilience and turn the corner. So many people will tell me, all right, I, yeah, I did this thing with food for a few weeks and it didn't do much. Like it was like, I gave up this whatever and it didn't do much. I tell you to empty that bucket when the bucket's overflowing, sometimes it takes months, more oftentimes than not, it takes months, potentially even years to turn a corner. So I know that's talking in you know generalities, but I think we need mm-hmm. to look at food, what I call the inflammatory core for people want specifics. Like if they haven't looked at these foods relationship with their body, like does this food love me back or not? Gluten containing grains would be on that list. Not necessarily one, but it's some people's number one. And it's going to be things like wheat, rye, barley, spelt, but mainly looking at wheat. And look, it's it, it's it's complex. It's is it the is it the wheat or is it what we've done to it? Yeah. I, I think it's a bit of both. It's the cons- overconsumption of a food. It's feasting on a famine food. It's stored well historically from an ancestral health perspective, but we've also hybridized it. We've also sprayed it with glyphosate and we're con- overconsuming it and not preparing it properly as far as fermentation and sprouting it and the sort of origins of it. Number two would be industrial seed oils like vegetable oil, canola oil, soybean oil. Is it the oil or is it the overconsumption of it? I think it's more the overconsumption of it because the modern Western diet is very pro omega-6. And those ratios of those omega-6, the the polyunsaturated fatty acids are really important. The ratios of omega-3, 6, and 9 are important. The modern Western diet is very pro high omega-6, which can be pro-inflammatory. Third would be added sugar, which is kind of a no-brainer. Most people know that. But I would even look for the nicer sounding euphemisms for sugar that can be hidden. So look for the grams of added sugar. And then fourth would be conventional dairy. You can get A2 dairy, cultured, fermented dairies like uh, uh, yogurts or kefirs, things like that, that will break down some of the casein protein to make it more digestible. But if people looked at those, what I, that inflammatory core four, and then the plus one would be alcohol, which gets me no friends when I say that, <laughs> but the alcohol is also going to be a problem when it comes to people's chronic health problems. I did this speaking engagement once and I was actually in Canada and um, with, with part of like your crew with Goop, right? And I was doing this whole thing and everyone was on board. They, I could see they were with me. You know, I was like, you know, exercise and sleep and all these things. And then right at the end, I was asked, hey, do you drink alcohol? And I was like, no, not really. <laughs> and they, I lost them. Yeah. And I, I don't know what it is about alcohol because it sounds naggy. The thing is, sugar used to be the naggy, like, oh, added sugar. I feel like we're past that. And it's the alcohol is the one less, like, what are you taking from me? And I sometimes wonder what the bigger question is. I understand taking the edge off 
I mean, since the beginning of time, they can make it from potatoes, from rice, from whatever. But I feel like the bigger question is, where did we get that it was like strange when you didn't drink alco- alcohol? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's yeah. it's a big one. And and uh, so, yeah, that's I know that never no one no one wins a popularity contest. The other side of that is people can go, okay, well, the stress you relieve by having that glass of wine is that better? So I, I, I you know, I'm sure you've heard it all. Like, you know, well, stress yeah. is really the number one and killer. It, it, <laughs> right. It's a neurotoxin. There's no way around it. Right. I, again, I'm a pragmatist. I'm not like a puritanical teetotaler when it comes to these things. So I have to give people a pragmatic. All right. If you're going to drink, then pick the least offensive, which is going to be a low alcohol, i.e. the least neurotoxin, low sugar, dry, biodynamic, organic wine probably would be on the list for most people if you can have a healthy relationship with it. Because look, I mean, there's the physiological impact. It can increase leaky gut syndrome. It can, Obviously, it's hard in the liver. It impacts your, so many different systems in the body. But then there's the emotional component of it where you just need it to deal with your background anxiety or these sort of unresolved things on a mental, emotional, spiritual level. Is that the best tool within your toolbox to address these issues? So mm-hmm. I think there's a physiological and a mental, emotional, spiritual conversation that I actually had in gut feelings in the book around these issues because I do see people like, uh, you're right, that's, that's the thing where a lot, everybody that's interested in wellness not everybody. A big percentage of it is because it is kind of glamorized even in the wellness world of like, yeah, it's the mom mom juice culture. It's it's really uh, not healthy as 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 good as they um, you know make it look like. It, and, and it's it's an issue. And I see people that are better. They're better off because they are eating better than the average American. They're working out. They're taking care of themselves. But they really they can't understand why they can't get passes plateau. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how often it is. It's really just a matter of taking alcohol out. And when you do that, you move past that plateau. Mm-hmm. You just have to ask a personal question is, are you okay with where you're at health wise? And if that thing is keeping you back from what you want, what do you want more? And I think that if there's a way to have alcohol that does love you back more, but normally it's going to be a lot less than what you're drinking and a lot less often than you are drinking. So we just have to find that sweet spot if you still want it in your life and you can find a threshold that it still loves you back or you're not noticing the negative impacts as much. There's all these, you know, terms for things that people might have with gut health, whether it's, you know, SIBO or, you know, leaky gut, which you mentioned earlier, things like that. So if someone comes, so they say, okay, I'm, I'm going to commit, I'm going to, really look at, at the at the nutrition. We won't even call it diet, right? We'll say what we're consuming, eating and drinking. And I and I think to your point earlier, there is no way around it. There's no way to hack it. There's no way to shortcut it. It's just you have to deal with what you're putting in your mouth for one. So mm-hmm. someone says, I'm on board. I'm gonna figure out the best way for my my personality, my lifestyle to eat the best that I can. And I'm committed. Like um, I'm, I'm going to make this my new practice. And they come to somebody, they come to you and is there a test? So blood work is, I think always a really good thing to do. General blood work, get a look under the hood. But is there a specific test where someone goes, ma'am, I'm just not feeling good in my gut. I just, there's something in there I know. Is there a test or tests that they can 
do that um, just will kind of get in there and get you more information? Yeah, we would run a comprehensive blood panel typically for our telehealth patients. It's based on health history, so the, the individual biomarkers can vary, but we want to look at the metabolism as a whole. Statistically, that's a problem for a lot of people. When you're looking at glucose, in, in functional medicine, we want glucose to be under 90 for the optimal range. I mean, most of your listeners know this already, but the reference range on labs are largely based on a statistical bell curve average of people who go to labs. People that go to labs aren't the healthiest group of people, sadly. That's why they're going to labs. So in functional medicine, we're looking at where does the body function the best? Where does optimal reside? Where does vibrant wellness live? So if you're not there, let's get you there. What, what do we have to do there? We want to put the labs in context, of course, with health history and other labs. But we're looking at optimal, not average. And I think a lot of things can be hidden in the gray areas because they think, oh yeah, I go to my, to my GP, I go to my PCP, everything looks normal, but they're, they're not looking beyond the surface. And if you don't feel normal, but the labs are coming back normal, either they're not running the right labs or they're not interpreting the labs appropriately or both. So we want to look at, okay, why do I feel the way that I do and not settle for it? Like you don't have to settle for feeling fatigued and anxious and bloated and inflamed. You don't. These are largely overcomable, healable, reversible things. So why would we want to settle for anything less? So looking at glucose, under 90, that's your blood sugar. And we get very granular with patients if we need to be. Like we will run CGM. We will have them wear CGMs and track the data and optimize nutrition based off of that if we need to and give them guidance on it. Um, the A1C, which is a three-month average of your blood sugar, we want that to be under 5.5. I think everybody should be running a comprehensive metabolic panel plus an A1C, which will include these. Looking at glucose, A1C, insulin, at, adding insulin if it's not included, and looking at your metabolism, your liver function, looking at AST and ALT and GGT. These liver enzymes because so many people are struggling with metabolic issues, the body's storing glucose or blood sugar as circulating fats or triglycerides and fat around the liver or fatty liver. It can become fatty liver disease, which you'll see spiked AST and ALT and sometimes GGT. That's basic, like just looking at the metabolism. I would say a full thyroid panel if it's relevant to the health history, is very insightful because thyroid issues, especially amongst women, are so ubiquitous. But you cannot hang your thyroid health on a TSH alone, which is the thyroid simulating hormone. We want a full thyroid panel, T total T4, total T3, free T3, free T4, and what are called thyroid antibodies, which are thyroid peroxidase antibody and thyroid globulin antibody which autoimmune thyroiditis or Hashimoto's disease is the leading cause of low thyroid function in the West. So, I mean, that we're just scratching the surface. Now we just talked right. about metabolism and thyroid, which impacts your metabolism. Th that's good places to start. If I'd add two more things, inflammation, I think looking at those is just a surrogate into what's going on from an inflammatory standpoint. High sensitivity C-reactive protein, we want it to be under one. And homocysteine is another inflammatory protein. We want that under seven. Wait, what was the one about this high sensitivity protein? What does that mean? Yeah, so high sensitivity C-reactive protein is an inflammatory amino acid. We Got all it. make it. It's normal to make it, but we don't want high levels of it. So the American Heart Association, the CDC have 
low average or high what they call relative risks for cardiovascular events, which just means this they typically run HSCRP to look at potential heart attack and stroke risk factors. Got it. But there are a lot of things that will spike HSCRP. Like we see a lot of people that have rheumatoid arthritis, other autoimmune problems, other um, flare-ups of inflammation because HSCRP is what they call a surrogate lab for different types of interleukins, which are pro-inflammatory cytokines. So inflammation is the commonality between just about all health problems, but the question is what's causing the inflammation? And that's really, I really get into with in gut feelings because it's both physiological and psychological for many people because underlying gut problems will spike inflammation. That's where 75% of the immune system is. Inflammation is a product of the immune system. But on the feeling side, chronic stress, unresolved trauma will impact inflammation levels just as much as a food that doesn't love you back, just as much as the wine, <laughs> mommy yeah. juice. Uh, it's it's going to impact it. So it's not just about what we're feeding our body. It's what are we serving our head and our heart on a daily basis. I, I think that's such a it's such a hard point to really believe because we think okay, I'm I'm trying to get my exercise in, you know, um, and people don't realize. I and I I personally think about this a lot because I have my own level of intensity that sometimes I, I know that I internalize things and I go, huh, I wonder how much of that um, I'm processing in the correct way and how much of that is going to come bite me later. Because, you know, even if you prescribe to sort of doing the right things and you then say, also, I'm going to try to be brave or chin up or grind through or stoic or whatever the words are that can be po have positive, you know, connotations behind them. I think being conscious about not eating that stress or those feelings is it is an everyday pay attention practice. I think you know I have I have a good friend in particular that I'm thinking of that uh, does on a lifestyle is off the charts, does everything perfect, and you know came up with cancer because you know wasn't really able maybe to deal with something from childhood and also wasn't particularly good at letting people help them or do nice things for them. And mm -hmm. so I, I just want to maybe visit that area. So, you know, there's, there's meditation, there's therapy. Um, are there things that when you're dealing with a patient that you say, Hey, would you be open to adding these things for the emotional side of your practice that you really see people do have the time and have gotten so many benefits from? Mm -hmm. It's huge. And like when we were talking about foods earlier, right? And like, and I was talking about people's relationship with food or relationship with alcohol. In many ways, for many people, that stuff will actually be a lot more effortless, a lot more intuitive, a lot more unimpeded whenever you deal with more of the feeling side of things. Because not that you have to have it completely resolved, entirely healed, because like life, is always healing. We're all human. Healing is nonlinear too with these sort of issues. But at least being starting that journey and being more conscious and having more mindful awareness around your body and body awareness and food awareness and uh, just life presence, you will make more mindful, intuitive decisions uh, and be more conscious about foods and drinks that love you back and those that don't love you back. So Look, therapy, we talk about, I mean, that the feeling side of the gut feelings paradox or the 
bi-directional duality there. Both need to be addressed. And a lot of the book is really talking about the science-backed things that I've seen clinically really be effective to, to deal with what's called the neuroimmunoendocrine axis, the intersection between our nervous system, our immune system, i.e. chronic inflammation, and the endocrine system, our hormonal system. And the every day there's a practice that I show people in the book to bring into their life, and they can lean into the ones that are the most resonant with them. But one of them is breath work. I think breath work is we hear about it, maybe we've dabbled in it, but it's like going to the gym. And you can't really say, well, I, I went to the gym once and it wasn't for me. All right, we didn't do anything. <laughs> it's like, that would be ludicrous. Nobody would say that's normal. But yet people will say that with meditation. They'll say that with breath work and they'll act like it wasn't for them. No, what we have as a culture on an individual basis, we are a nation of poor vagal tone, weak vagal tone. That is a, that's the largest cranial nerve in the body that innervates, that impacts the gut-brain axis, the connection between the gut and the brain, and it's sort of the master regulator of our parasympathetic nervous system, our resting, digesting, hormone balance, grounded, regulated state. And we have a hyperactive, sympathetic, fight or flight, freeze, inflamed state. So yeah, we're going to suck at breath work. We're going to suck at meditation when we have a weak, flabby vagus nerve. But that's why you keep showing up and do things that don't come naturally. Make your weak parts your strong parts. And that's only going to get strong with consistency. Um, so yeah, welcome to the club if you're not good at meditation and breath work. But that's why we need to do it. And the people that are really the most visceral against it are normally the ones that need to do it the most. Yeah, it's it's so true. So maybe uh, we could just visit there for a second. We uh, We've you know, I love breathing because it is something, it's the essence of life. And yet most of us are doing it incorrectly. So if let's just say, uh, either a, someone sitting at their desk or a mom driving, you know, a van full of kids to a sporting practice, yeah. what would be something that they could implement there in their breathing practice? Cause you do give a lot of nice examples in the book to, to just even start to practice and bring that awareness. Sure. Yeah, you're right. Most of us have shallow breathing. We're breathing out of our chest. And that's part of that sympathetic overactivation and underactive parasympathetic. And that we could assume some level of poor vagal tone or weak vagal tone, which we want to strengthen to regulate that resting digesting. So breath work is one way to tone that vagus nerve. You could do something as simple as I talk about in the book, like a beginner practice is belly breathing. It's lying on your back. You can't maybe necessarily do that in the van when you're picking the kids up, but maybe you could get out on a little grassy knoll and do it there or lay in the back of the van and watch your, put your, one of your hands on your belly and have your stomach move and breathe like babies breathe. If you've ever seen like a baby or toddler breathe, they're breathing very, very naturally with those deep belly breaths that we kind of lose over the course of our lives. So it's retraining our bodies to breathe these deeper breaths. 
that uh, kind of another easy thing that you could do while you're waiting for the kids. And I, I have to pick up my daughter from dance or my, you know, my son from something, but she's driving now, which I, shout out to all the parents that have kids that are driving now. It's scary as heck, but you don't have to be an Uber driver. It's kind of that nice. <laughs> this like bittersweet moment. Um, so box breathing, breathe in for four seconds through your nose, hold for four seconds, and then breathe out through your mouth. Th sorry, breathe out through your nose for four seconds. And then repeat that. You're holding for four, breathing in, and then breathing out and alternating between the two. So that is box breathing. That's an easy, accessible, completely free. Do it for 5, 10, 15 minutes. Start off low and slow. Again, like you're going to the gym. You're not going to go to an advanced class if you've never worked out before. You meet your body where it's at and then be consistent with that practice and then progress from there. The more advanced breath work, the science of breath work that I talk about in the book is something called holotropic breath work, which is born out of psychedelic research of just how to, it's the opposite of breathing through your nose, which a lot of breath work practices are through the nasal breathing, but holotropic is typically done through the mouth. It's, it's the opposite of, it's not so much a grounding experience, but it's very a deeply somatic visceral experience to elicit some of the similar mechanisms of our nervous system as psychedelics do, which a lot of people that are learning about wellness have heard about the research around psychedelics and when it relates to trauma, stored trauma in the body, different inflammatory autoimmune problems. Well, holotropic breathwork really is parallel with the psychedelic research as a way to endogenously, naturally help to metabolize stored trauma, which mm -hmm. is pretty powerful, but we have control over it. We have control over it from the breath because actually breathing through your nose is kind of like the brakes slows down that holotropic experience where breathing through your mouth uh, can kind of be the gas, the, the the gas pedal, kind of speed that up. So you typically would do that with a class practitioner until mm -hmm. you can get equipped with the skill set of it, and then you could do it on your own potentially. But it's typically done in a class setting because it is so. I mean, people can have spasms of their arms; it can get kind of oh, freaky. Yeah. But it's it is life changing for people that have trauma uh, and anxiety issues and autoimmune problems, breath work can be huge. And not just breath work, but let me open it up to like other somatic practices. I've seen it be a game changer for our telehealth patients, the ones that are consistent with it. The stubborn digestive problems, stumber, stubborn mental health issues, stubborn autoimmune flare-ups, food sensitivities, it's a massive needle mover for those problems when they're consistent with strengthening the vagus nerve in that way. You know, I, I love this because it's so hard for us culturally to accept that something that we can do for free, once we learn as a tool, could actually be one of the single most beneficial things for our health and sense of well-being. Um, and I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I have to remember this myself. It's sort of uh, like if somebody has an exercise bike, bike at their house then all of a sudden you never use it, but you would somehow go to a spin class, right? So mm -hmm. this idea of also doing with other people, I think makes it easier to have that consistency in your life. I utilize the people that come to my house to train or I use Laird. If he's going to go do breathing, I, instead of looking at it like, oh yeah, I can do that anytime. I go, oh, this is an opportunity for me to jump in there. And there is something to be said for 
collectively breathing together there mm-hmm. there's a is it you know is, is it a form of rhythm and tribalism and you mm-hmm. know all of those things too i think it's a really beautiful thing once you kind of get over it uh yeah. you know it isn't you know if people get self-conscious or let's say you're going to make noise or you're you know it's interesting you'll see people laying on the ground and they will not go into their tummy women will not We've been taught so much, like, hey, suck it in. Suck it in. Suck it in. It's like, no, let that thing out. Be soft. Just like let it open. And you instantly relax. Mm -hmm. It's so beautiful. It is. And and you're right. It is. There's something healing, even removing the actual science of the holotropic breath or any type of breath work. There is healing and just being awkward in a community and kind of breaking those barriers and research have shown has shown even fate being face to face whether it's online or i would assume that when you're talking about breathwork being in person has a different like human to human healing catharsis that that itself can improve vagal tone people i mean you look at the epidemic of loneliness that's a whole other topic of what that's doing to human health and there's no, there's ultimately no true replacement for in-person contact. I'm in telehealth, but I still will get my patients out in their community because it's so primally important. It's, it's decreasing that chasm between genetics and epigenetics. Our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 years. So we're acting like, okay, our DNA is living in a brave new world. But the reality is, it's not, it's this mismatch is we're paying the price for it in the form of chronic health problems and mental health issues. How are you dealing with that? And this is a selfish question with your kids. How are you, because in a way they live in a different world than you and I were raised in. And I find myself not really understanding, especially my youngest daughter, my older two really seem to have a kind of a, a grip on their relationship with technology. I sometimes, I joke, but it's also because of my fear. I'm like, well, we've lost the youngest one to the experiment. Um, you know, I'm like, well, they're, well, two out of three, you know, it's not bad. Uh, I just wonder, is there a practice in your house? Have you, have you figured something out in this way um, to help your own children? Because it's tricky. It is. And I, look, even with the breath work, and all of this stuff, I'm like, I'm speaking as somebody that does like, I I'm right there with everybody that's listening. Like they call it a practice for a reason. It's because we don't have it all figured out. We're all humans. We're all subject to the same entropy and distraction and busyness and laziness sometimes procrastination. So I have not like, I'm not some sort of wellness guru profit. I just, (laughs) and I do this for a living. So I want people to give themselves grace and lightness to their life and all of these things. But with, when it comes to parenting, same thing, I look back and I'm like, dang, I, it's like that Maya Angelou, like when you know better, you do better, hopefully. And that's how I feel like if my kids are teenagers now, I wish I would have started so much younger and so many different things, but you know, they're great kids and we did the best we can with the information we had at that time. And it's that, it's that cliche, right? The, the days are long, but the years are short. Like it's mm-hmm. so deeply true that it's like people are just trying to get through the day and they're just, they're, they're we're, we're constantly marketed to, to have all the things or do the things. We made a decision intentionally 
for us. We made this decision for us. I'm not saying that this is the right way. Our kids did not have technology until like basically this year. <laughs> My son is 16 years old and did not have a cell phone until this past year. So he was the only one though. So I realized we're kind of unicorns in that way where we, he did not have, of course, didn't have social media. He didn't even have a, so he may have had a cell phone the last year before that, but just could text. He did not have, he could not communicate other than texting because it was just pragmatic. He was at sporting events, whatever, but he definitely did not have social media until this year. And then now it's just Instagram and, you know, but you know what? And I'm not saying my, this because my son's some amazing kid. He is amazing, but that's because I'm his dad and I'm saying that. But I feel like it's created a mindful awareness. So he actually came to us the other day and said, Dad, can you put on time limits on this? Because I can't stop. Once I'm in there, I'm like constantly scrolling. I just don't like the way it makes me feel. There's more mindful awareness around it. But I do feel like that for us, we started early. So that was like, he knew he kind of, in a way, grew up the way we grew up where he's like, yeah. he wasn't, this wasn't like always a part of his life. He had TV, he had Netflix, he had a computer. So it's not like he was like Amish, but he definitely wasn't Wally like on that Pixar film, like staring at a screen all day long where, um, you know, that's what it is for his, his generation. My daughter, uh, same thing. Like she's not on social media. She's 14 years old. She has a cell phone to text. That's it. She's at dance class. She needs us to pick her up. That's what we use it for. So, but does she does she push back in a heart? Because girls, I feel, are more boys want to maybe play games, but I feel like with girls, like that social component of the technology, did, is she pushing back harder or there's just, you guys don't, there's no room for she's that? She's not. My son, it's interesting. And I think this oh. is such a unique, interesting thing with parents. Like we know our kids, right? It's like every kid's going to be different. Like you said, like the third one, well, two out of three ain't bad. Like every kid's, some are mm -hmm. easier in some areas, some are harder in that, in the same area. So it's like, for us, for her, she's fine with socializing with her friends in person. She has what she prefers. She doesn't need the other stuff. She wants to hang out with her friends. So it's a lot of Uber driving <laughs> with us taking her to hang out with her friends, but which is annoying, but I'd much rather have that than her on TikTok or Snapchat. Yeah. So that's right. That's I, a, that's I think it's just that's an important point. It's just tougher. It's just, it's, it's, it's more difficult. I get it. Yep. It's, so it'd be so much easier for me to say, yeah, whatever they wanted on technology was going to give it to them. I want them to live in a modern world, but I want them to have a, a conscious awareness of how they consume the modern world. Yeah. And I think when you get the chance to mature a little bit, then you do have perspective on, hey, where this plays in my in my life. Yeah. What about... Go ahead. Sorry. I, I cut no, I was going to say some kids are better at regulating than others. My son is will be the first to admit, and he says has said this like publicly on my podcast and things is that he's not as good at it. So he, mm -hmm. so my daughter can like, like video games, like my son could, could play video games forever. And he knows he doesn't like how way he feels after that. My daughter, she doesn't need anyone to parent her with that. Like she can get up and leave and be fine. So we all know our kids. We just need to be there for them. Kids are in many ways screaming for healthy boundaries. And we just need to, to give that to them when they need that. Yeah. It's a very good point. Yeah. It's such an interesting thing uh, when you're unsure about parenting, 
you know, like, uh, you go, Oh, is this too much? Is this not enough? It's like, I feel like it's that constant calibration of, you know, knowing when to push a little harder, when to lay off yeah. and, and things like that. It, it can be so tricky. This podcast is brought to you by Ritual. I personally have been taking their Essential for Women 18 plus multivitamin since the pandemic began. I was just looking for a really great multivitamin and I love the fact that it has high quality, traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. Because for me, if you're going to, and if I'm going to share it with you, put your resources, whether it's your time or money towards something, you want to know, hey, not only do they have best practices, but this is actually going to do something for me. And 97% of women ages 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin D from their diet. It's hard to do. And I like to get as much as I can from my diet, but that is why I take a multivitamin. And Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% in a clinical study. The other thing is they take nine key nutrients in two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption. So I think one of the things is, is like, oh, is it an empty stomach? Is it a full stomach? Well, because they, the way that they've done these capital, capsules, it's dental on an empty stomach. And at the end, you get this nice little minty essence in every bottle. So for a lot of people, sometimes these are the things that keep them from taking multis and making it easy and being able to enjoy it, whether it's timing or I don't like the after burps. And the other thing about it is ritual multivitamins are vegan. They're non-GMO project verified gluten and major allergen free, and they are certified B Corp. And like I said earlier, everything is made traceable and they have a wonderful offer for you today. So all you have to do, you don't have any more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. You'll get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash Gabby. If you want to start your ritual, or you can add the Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today, that's ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash Gabby for 25% off. This podcast is brought to you by Babbel. I don't know about you, but every time I travel, I kick myself that I haven't spent more time learning whatever language it is in the place that I'm visiting. It's like you want to connect with the people in a real way. Well, immersion, you know, that's the best way. But most of us can't move somewhere and, and you know live there and learn the language, even though that's number one. But number two is with Babbel. And the reason that is, is first of all, they have, it's really quick. They've got 10-minute lessons, and but they're handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. But what I love about it is it's designed by real people for real conversations. It's like, listen, we all want to know like, Talk about food and directions and things like that. And Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real life situations and delivered with conversation-based teaching. So you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. And that's the other thing I love is just combining that because you think, okay, maybe using a trip that you have planned or getting together with family somewhere, using that as your motivation to get going. And you don't have to pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that maybe don't really even help you, you know, speak a new language. In fact, studies show, there was one study, they did studies at Yale, Michigan State, that Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours, that's nothing, is equivalent to a full semester at college. They've got over 16 million subscribers sold, plus 
All of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. So here's the incredible offer for a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, you can get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for my listeners at babbel.com slash Gabby. So to get 50% off at babbel.com slash Gabby, that's Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Gabby. Some rules and restrictions may apply. So you're, you're a very busy person doing a lot of different things. You, so let's say your daily practice is, is very buttoned up what you eat when you go to bed, all these things. What about the stress? Where do you, what do you do with the stress? How do you, is it the meditation? Is it the breathing? Does it ever get to you? You know, where, where, how do you manage that, that stress of, okay, 9,000 things and I'm still got Mm -hmm. 4,000 when I go to bed. Like, how do you deal with it? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it is just, for me, it is these practices that I'm still need to be better at and and showing up and not being perfect and being okay with not being perfect. I think that ultimately, and that's a big part of gut feelings, is infusing grace into wellness practices, is that you don't have to be an aficionado, a pro at all this stuff. Just stay consistent with the things that are needle needle movers and do it from a sense of self-respect and nourishment and wanting to give your body things that love it back. Um, that is how I operate my life for the most part. And I don't stress. It's, I think it's a lot of when I practice these tools that I talk about in the book, there is this base of grace around my day. So it's like relatively like, but not absolutely. It's relatively like, oh, I have these things that I have to do. I didn't get it done. But so it's a relative, it's on my mind. It's a relative, I don't even call it stressor or something to deal with, but it's not going to rock my world. I think when you practice these practices like mindfulness, like breath work, like somatic practices, like eating foods that love you back, there is a resilience and there's a perspective on what truly matters too. So I think that, again, I'm not a guru, but it's just a matter of, I just have seen the benefits of these practices that I see work in my patients' lives. And I see, and I I talk about in in the book. So a practical thing for me is being in nature as much as possible, which I know you know about too. Like it, do whatever you can, whatever you have access to, like find green space if you're in, a, in an urban area. Like I live in the country, in the woods, and it's like the most healing thing ever for me. So I couldn't imagine if I was living in such a frenetic busyness all the time. And after I had a busy day at work, it it's very healing for me to come home. And I, I know not everybody has, has that, but it is something for me very practical that's just very grounding for me. What's the latest thing that you've either added into your practice or removed that was, you know, a challenge for you? Um, I, 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 what I added recently, I mean, I think the breath work I've been more consistent with it over the past mm. two years of researching the book. 
I've implemented it in patients' lives, <laughs> but I've not done it in myself so consistently. And it does not come naturally to me. So when I'm saying like, hey, like be consistent with it, that's the only way yeah. you're going to see change. I'm t- talking to myself too. Um, and yeah, that's the biggest change. And really what it was is my research of this book of just seeing, wow, this really is, has some so much, this has so much compelling research around it. And then seeing enough patients over the years see it be such a game changer in their life that I'm like, oh, I want to see what this can do for me too. It is a great tool to release a lot of stored stress because our body is a cellular library and our experiences throughout the day, our thoughts, whether to other people or to ourselves, our, our emotions, past traumas are living in themselves. They're the books that fill up that library. So when people, like you said, there's so much like um, spiritual components of this too. When you t- think of prana and the, a- the ancient uh, Eastern, that's breath, that's the energy life force. You think of in uh, the, the Bible, in the Old Testament, Ruach HaKodesh was the, the breath, the Holy Spirit is the Holy Breath. Ruach is, the, is translated as breath. So there's a lot of um, ancient origins of that, that somehow the gut and the vagus nerve, they didn't have the randomized control trials, but somehow our ancestors knew that the gut was the seat of the soul and the breath was connected to life. And now we know the vagus nerve is connected to all of these things. Science is catching up with antiquity that we can really get back to our birthright of a regulated nervous system, a regulated neuroimmunoendocrine system to have not only balanced nervous system, but balanced hormones and calmed inflammation levels. So your book has, and I was actually surprised in Gut Feelings, so many beautiful recipes. That was a big move. I mean, beautiful. The pictures are beautiful. It's very thoughtful. Um, So this book has a a different, also a different level of support where it's like, hey, I'm going to talk about these things and this food, and Mm -hmm. then we can do this together. Which, Which brings me to the grocery store. If someone is, they go, okay, uh, I'm not going to go to the store hungry. We all know that secret. Okay, I never buy more peanut butter or chocolate than when I go to the market when I'm hungry. Uh, it's just the way it is. So someone's going fed. We we're gonna you know uh, nothing in boxes and bags. But do you have any other you know secrets to somebody if they sort of are on this quest to you know heal or maximize their gut health? Yeah. Well, one of the major things that I talk about in gut feelings is our, it's, it's a born out of something that I use clinically for many patients. And it's something called a GAPS protocol. GAPS is an acronym, G-A-P-S. It stands for gut and psychology syndrome or gut and physiology syndrome. So we use it for different gut brain access issues and gut immune, uh, gut inflammatory, different autoimmune problems. So it's very, very effective therapeutically over months, not days. So it is a way to show up for yourself and nourish that gut brain, that neuroimmunoendocrine axis and um, the gut, your gut health as a whole. So I put soups and stews recipes in the book. I think it's one of the easiest ways to calm a dysregulated gut health, irritated, inflammatory, sensitive gut, bloated gut, IBS-ridden gut, 
this is, is it's a very effective tool because it's and it's nothing new. I mean, again, going back to science catching up with antiquity, this is very known and used for thousands of years in Ayurvedic medicine and traditional Chinese medicine and many other cultures around the world. But it's just almost in a way pre-digesting the food. So instead of lots of raw foods, lots of harder to digest foods, we are cooking it down. I even have some patients puree the vegetables, really cook it down. The meat is very soft, easy to digest protein. And you could do vegetarian, you could do vegan options too. And I have many recipes of those in the book too, um, to ground and nourish a upset gut. Um, so, and it's very economical too, and affordable because you can put lots of things that maybe are going bad produce wise, put it in the soup. You can batch make it and have it throughout the week. So I, I think that that's something to think mm-hmm. think about because many people that are trying to go to more interest, they're more interested in wellness. They're maybe having lots and lots of salads, like big bowls of salads, which yeah. can be hard to digest. I'm not against salads at all if it work, it's for, if it's working for you. But you know, I have many patients that even steam salads at the beginning, so not having so many raw things, and then over time you can build up your raw stuff fine. But you have to meet your gut where it's at. So having more cooked soups and stews, steamed salads, cooked vegetables, and over time, you can shift that pie chart to more raw, less cooked if you want to. But some people stay indefinitely with more cooked vegetables and just do better there. Yeah, I think I think it's very true. When I either have been traveling or I just, you know, you get off the rails a little bit, the broth and the soups really kind of get glide you back into this better lane of not only feeling better, but just giving yourself a break. I feel like they, mm-hmm. they give your system this break that um, is really is really nurturing. It is. Supplements, prebiotics, probiotics. I mean, again, all of this, it's like 90 million, 18 billion. It's like it gets very confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, are there supplements themselves that you think uh, they, sh- they show up and is it sort of something that creates an anti-inflammatory response in the body? Is it, is, are there supplements that you, you typically like across the um, board? And I know not everything is for everyone, but yeah, right. Yeah. Um, well, food is first, food is first, right? It's like, mm. you can't supplement your way out of a poor diet. So start with food. Cause look, the foods can provide your body, the prebiotics and the fiber to make the, like be food for the microbiome to then make support bacterial diversity and produce these short chain fatty acids that we want for our immune system in our brain. But certainly the additional like things that are food technically, but you're not like chewing them. If you're talking about gut brain, gut like microbiome mood axis specifically, I think psyllium husk or inulin fiber, some sort of Prebiotic fiber is a great, low-cost, accessible way to increase the fiber you're consuming. Start off low and slow, certainly, if you're new to this. Um, More isn't always better. But most people aren't getting enough fiber from the foods they're having, especially if you have an unhealthy gut. You have to find the right fiber that works for you. Some fiber can make bloating worse. We deal a lot with SIBO cases, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So a lot of these fermentable fibers can be problematic. But psyllium husk, I actually see work really well for a lot of people. And you add a tablespoon or so in water, it kind of congeals in sort of this viscous 
liquid and you can drink it. It doesn't taste like much. It's fine. Um, it adds bulk to the stool. So if someone's prone to constipation, it can help constipation, but more can actually add too much bulk and make it worse. So start <laughs> off low and slow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So psyllium husk, I think probiotics can be beneficial. Um, so different strains of lactobacillus, bifidobacterium. I love spore-based biotics. I think those spore-based probiotics can be great. I think, yeah, I, 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 I'll think of a postbiotic. Postbiotics, uh, we put in many patient protocols butyrate because we'll see oftentimes low levels of butyrate, which is needed for digestive health, gut health, seen it for brain health. Um, now you can get that from fiber. The more you're producing short chain fatty acids, like the more you're producing bacterial diversity, you can get that from just eating more diverse sources of fiber from plant foods, as well as if you're supplementing with like something like psyllium husk, you can over time produce uh, butyrate. But Therapeutic levels of butyrate can be a tool within the toolbox while you're working on healing your gut. So I see it as like a seasonal temporal time for like a gut healing protocol. And there's a compound called urolithin A, which I think the research around that's very compelling. It's another postbiotic that we can actually, we some of us can make it when we have copious amounts of pomegranate <laughs> seeds, which I mean, you know, have at it, but some of us don't have any, have the right bacteria in our gut to produce urolithin A. So I've been supplementing uh, and experimenting with different postbiotics like urolithin A to um, help my immune system, my mitochondrial health, something called mitophagy, which is basically mitochondrial renewal or mitochondrial autophagy. Um, so those are some things that come to mind as far as gut health, but food is first. Yeah, I, I love that. So I eat perfect. Let's say I go to bed early. I'm managing my stress. I meditate, you know, or I have a breathing practice. So there's absolutely no reason because I'm super busy. I don't need to exercise or does exercise taking a walk, a little time under tension. How does just moving your body impact uh, your gut. It's huge. It's massive. Most people aren't moving enough. And that's one of the most common things that people don't realize that being sedentary, and most of us have more of a sedentary job, uh, can be one of the easiest things to get things moving, literally. Getting your body moving by walking will help with GI motility. Um, staying hydrated, obviously, is, another, is part of that. But beyond just GI motility, if you're talking about like a constipation or just poor bloating, movement can be helpful. But um, it's also great for your metabolic health too. I mean, walking even 15 minutes after a meal can tremendously decrease glucose spikes and balance blood sugar. It, we do it at lunch together as a team, most of the team goes with me. I try not to shame the ones that want to stay back, but I, I will, uh, we go on like a communal, uh, speed walking for about 30 minutes, uh, around the tele, like around the block here, uh, which it's, it's great. It's great. Again, community, it's really important. So get a walking buddy can be really great. And it's like therapy too. We're like downloading the day of like, you know, what's going on. Yeah. And it's secretly, no one's trying to pretend that they're racing, but you all are racing and who's <laughs> going to be first, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> or else it would turn into like someone's pulling someone's sweatshirt back and like, you know, something <laughs> like that. 
trends, a lot of times you'll see things peak up and people love trends, right? Like they like a Mm -hmm. hot new thing or a magic bullet. Is there anything that you're seeing that you like or don't like as far as trends talking about gut health Um, that people should be aware of? Yeah, I think, well, good trends. I do see more and more people talking about postbiotics, which I know that there is a lack of bacterial diversity going on in the human microbiome collectively, and that's intimately connected to the soil microbiome and what's going on with our planet. And our we're a microcosm of what's going on on a planetary level, on an environmental level. So supplementing with postbiotics makes sense to me when I look at labs for a living and I see a lack of bacterial diversity as being a supportive tool. Start with food, but fill in the gaps with supplement support. With prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics, I think all have their place there. Um, Things, I mean, people, this isn't really a new trend per se, but I get asked this question a lot. Maybe it's trending on social media. It's colonics. Um, Do you recommend colonics? Do you recommend enemas? Not necessarily. Really, for the average person, there's probably a sp- specific subset of people who are dealing with specific health issues that need these things for a time. I don't see it to be needed for the vast majority of people that are struggling with gut health problems. So I would say not that that's a trend per se, but I do. It's a frequently asked question when you talk for about poop for a living. I guess people ask you right. about colonics and enemas. <laughs> yeah, or um, like the co- the coffee enemas and things like that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And look, I have, I've had some patients that tell me, oh, this is a tool within my toolbox. I've done the coffee enema. They've learned about it. They've researched about it and they like it. So I'm not saying there's not a place for it, but I don't see it being like, this is the number one thing people should be doing for their gut health. I just don't, I think it could be, um, I don't think people need to run and get a coffee and (laughs) put it in an enema bag. I was uh, reading something uh, which brings me to anything new and exciting that, you know, do you see something in research that's really making you uh, excited? I, I was reading something from a woman, uh, Dr. Hazan, on uh, fecal implants and sort of some really, mm. you know, I had a friend actually use it for a son who was autistic, who had a pretty intense sissing, which for people who don't know what that is, it's it's almost like your hands start moving. And I want to explain it as like a physical frustration. And he um, had a lot of success through the the fecal implants. But now they're saying possibly for microbiome and gut health, there's, mm-hmm. there's some trends there that are pretty interesting. I was just curious if there's something you see on the horizon or that you've come in contact with that you think, wow, this is this might really turn into something or is is pretty interesting. I've re- I've fought, been following the research and writing about fecal transplants for a lot of years now and seen it over the years work well for many people. It's not a magic cure-all for everybody. There's a lot of variables to consider. Uh, you definitely want to make sure you're doing it appropriately, ideally with the doctor and vetting all, every aspect of these things because these are massive modulators of your immune system. And I've seen some cases, albeit rare, really get worse from fecal transplants. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't come without its set, set of potential side effects because it could cause flare-ups because you don't know how you're really, like you said, there's trillions of bacteria. We understand a very small percentage of them and you're going and putting in all of these variables in an immune system that's already tempestuous. So 
but mm-hmm. this is for desperate people. This yeah. is these are typically for people that have exhausted all options. Most of them are a lot better off than they would be, but they're not where they need to be, and they're looking to for the next level. So I, I think it has its place, and I'm so happy and excited that the re- the research some researchers are really looking at this and how it can be helpful for different neurological issues, different autoimmune issues, and specific autoimmune digestive problems. Classically, it's only been officially used in the conventional world in many spaces for acute C. diff, C. difficile uh, gastrointestinal infections. But now it's been looked at with Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, MS, autism spectrum issues. So I I am hopeful and I, I have seen it be a very effective needle mover for some people. Yeah. And, and for anyone listening, it is as right now, at least it is pretty expensive. So I just, you know, want to bring that up. Uh, yeah. And then I know some people that like get, look at YouTube videos and they put poop in a blender and like get an <laughs> enema bag and do it themselves. Like this is real. <laughs> this happens. This uh, new telehealth patients are like, yeah, I tried it. <laughs> the things that people try DIY poop transplants. I don't recommend that. <laughs> And whose poop are you transplanting? <laughs> yeah, I know. I, my, I, I, <laughs> it's so funny that this is the part. <laughs> my clinic manager was talking about it the other day because she was talking about such and such case. And she was, like, she was like, well, who would we get for like this such? A, but my grandma is going to be turning 100 this year. I'm thinking <laughs> we need to get Phyllis's poop <laughs> because my grandma lived 100 years and she's on like no medications and doing fine. So we need to find these centenarians that are like, I, I think that, that there's something to that. Wait, is she really on no meds at all? Yeah, she's on a thyroid replacement hormone. Amazing. Yeah. How did she, yeah. most, they usually want to get you on the meds pretty quick. Like, oh, your cholesterol is high. Oh, this is happening. Let's just slap you on. Yeah. What, Phyllis just put her foot down and said no? I guess so. I, I guess Phyllis, I'm assuming she probably was pushed at some point. Yeah, she's just a stubborn old lady and probably worked to her benefit. <laughs> We love well, Phyllis. Unbelievable. Well, uh, Dr. Cole, in, you've done so much research. And if somebody was listening to this, and, and I want to say this, your book does a very beautiful job about, it's not only about bringing awareness to that connection of one's feelings and past life experience and um, lifestyle, stress management, all these things connected to gut health and giving a very sort of achievable, simple description of gut health. But if somebody was like, hey, I really want to geek out on some very heady books, what books do you like that, you know, most people probably couldn't get through that would Mm -hmm. give you a deeper dive into uh, gut health? Yeah. Um, Let's think about this. I I think that honestly, where I would go is, is to PubMed. I would really look at the journals themselves. If people are really interested in the research, like look at the the journals that are out there, the gastrointestinal mm. journals out there, the microbiologist journals out there, the uh, American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. There's so much exciting research out there and you can get, you can search by search word. You can look for word, things that you're interested in. So if you're interested in microbiome, search microbiome. If you're interested in fecal, fecal microbiota transplants, FMTs, search that. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what I love about the time that we live in where you have this 
democratization, this decentralization of health information, where it's not like, well, I read the clickbait headlines on the news of the ones that they want to cover, which is interesting too, right? We should, I, I do the same thing, but can we go and look at all the things that don't make the headlines or maybe do make the headlines, but we can look at the context behind it. I think all of that's very interesting. So it's not a book per se, but I, th- I would really encourage anybody that's really interested in health and wellness get into the journals and read the research. If you're looking for something heady, if you're looking for something erudite, I think that that stuff's very interesting and you can go to the source. Yeah. And, and finally, if, you know, a lot of people don't feel good, right? They're, they're tired. They're not fired up about life. They just think that that's, oh, I'm gassy. They, for them, we've, a lot of us have accepted. It's just a part of life. You know, can you remind us that even if you're feeling pretty badly and you think it's dire, that sometimes the distance between there and feeling a whole lot better and healing and being healthier is maybe a shorter path than people realize? It it truly is. I mean, I see people in all different, you know, everything from mild symptoms are looking to optimize to extreme symptoms. The body, I've seen every variable you can think of for the past 13 years, like thousands of patients a year (laughs) that we manage as a clinic. So I've seen just about every socioeconomic, every excuse under the sun. I have seen it. I have heard it. (laughs) And I'll tell you that a few truths that I've seen over the years. One is the body is amazingly resilient. And number two, you don't have to have it all figured out to start moving the needle in the positive direction. So don't get caught up in that paralysis of analysis that we talked about. Number three, I, it people think it's I'm too busy or I don't have enough money to be healthy. That I'll tell you that is a lie that's keeping you back from living the life you were created for. Because I see very busy people on fixed incomes all the time get healthy, but their why was bigger than their excuses. And that's tough love, but it's the truth. That's the scapegoat that our culture tells us. And then we love it because it resonates with our own scapegoating of saying, well, it's not for me. It's for the one percenters. It's for the whatever, the, the, the blonde famous people, but not for me. But the reality is that's not what I see on an hourly basis. I see people that have limited resources and limited time reclaim their health from very serious things all the time. Single moms, single working moms that have literally lost their hair and lost their vision from something like MS and alopecia reclaim their sight, reclaim their mobility and get their hair back. So that's the type of stuff that I'm used to seeing. So I would just encourage people to speak life into their situation and realize they have everything they need to start moving the needle in the right direction. Dr. Cole, I really appreciate you and your time. And wait, before I go, I want to ask you how you feel about apple cider vinegar and bitters. Just curious. I I think both have their place. I, I think apple cider vinegar mixed with water, like not mm-hmm. straight up, which can burn <laughs> esophagus and be too strong. And what type of freak wants to do that anyways, uh, can be really good at supporting. It's a prebiotic because the mother, if you're getting the, the, the ACV with the mother, meaning that the, the uh, actual uh, symbiotic culture, basically, that's 
part of the fermentation process. It's a prebiotic uh, as well as it's very acidic, obviously. It's going to help with something called hypochlorhydria or decreased hydrochloric acid. Most people have a low stomach acid. So start off low and slow. Too much is not what you want, but work it to tolerance. It can be a very much a game changer at shifting the pH of the gut as well as providing some prebiotics to um, the gastrointestinal system. And um, what was the other one you said? Bitter, bitters. Bitters. Old, oh, bitter. Yeah. Same thing. Same thing. Yeah. So d- getting like dandelion or gentian or the, these extracts from bitter greens are really help at reshifting the HCL production, these pH of the gut, which is low. So you, you don't necessarily need both, but you could use both the ACV and the digestive bitters, but both are potential tools to do very similar things. So people can see you and hear you on a podcast. Can you share with us all the places if uh, so we can get more of uh, you. And the book I'm going to remind people is Gut Feelings. Thank you. Yeah, everything's at drwillcole.com. Uh, we have new telehealth options for people if people are interested in that. We have the links to my podcast, The Art of Being Well is there. We have a new episode every week and um, the bo- all the links to the books. And there's tons of free resources there for people. There's like thousands of articles I've written over the years with all the links to the research. So I talked about those journals. If they want to go and get further reading, they can go and actually read the studies themselves if they uh, want to geek out on that sort of stuff. Have you been having fun doing the podcast? How's that? I have been. Yeah, I'm enjoying it more now. And I, I've, part of it is me. I love talking to people, but it was tough for me to go from patient to podcast, patient to podcast. So now I batch record them, which is so much better for my like self-care, like my mental state of like mm-hmm. just staying in the zone with patients. And then I'll do a block of podcasts and uh, that way it's it's a little bit less jolting to go from my doctor hat to podcast. <laughs> Well, I love having you here. It's great to see you and, uh, and congratulations with everything. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click gabbyreese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at Gabby Reese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.